I'm Jonathan Goldstein, and you're listening to Wiretap on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius Satellite Radio 159. Today's episode, Legacy. An old Jewish man is lying on his deathbed. His son sits at his side. That smell, the father says to him. Is mama making my favorite apple strudel? Yes, father, the son says. Ah, if only I could have just one more piece of mama's apple strudel, the father says. Would you get me a piece? The son goes off towards the kitchen. After a while, he returns. Did you bring the apple strudel, the father asks, his voice weak. The son shakes his head no. Why, the father asks, it's my dying wish. Well, says the son, mom told me the strudel is for after the funeral. Now, this is, of course, an old Jewish joke, but in our household, when I was growing up, it was more than that. It was an actual piece of family history. You see, my father believes that some of these old Jewish jokes that you hear were actually based on his dad, Sam Goldstein. Sam drove the whole house crazy with his imagined illnesses, often taking to his deathbed two, even three times a week. It got to the point where people stopped taking him seriously. You know, my, my father was always, if he had a, some kind of a, uh, uh, he didn't feel well, he was always on his deathbed, you know? And my mother, she was rather sarcastic with him. But, I mean, you're saying this apple strudel joke isn't just a joke someone made up. This is based on a real situation, a a, a real man. Yeah, that was my father. I mean, did you, at at the time, did any of this stuff strike any of you as funny? No, not at all. If if the joke was on him, it was never funny. He, He could laugh hilariously mm-hmm. at somebody else, but not at himself. If he was in pain or he thought he was dying or he was sick, it was a very serious situation. You didn't dare laugh at him. Okay, here, here's another joke that's somewhat in poor taste that you attribute to him. Three men are discussing their previous night's lovemaking, an Italian, a Frenchman, and a Jew. So the Italian says, My wife, I rubbed her all over with fine olive oil. Then we made wonderful love. She screamed for five minutes. The Frenchman says, I smoothed sweet butter on my wife's body. Then we made passionate love. She screamed for half an hour. The Jew says, I covered my wife's body with schmaltz. We made love, and she screamed for six hours. The others say, Six hours? How did you make her scream for six hours? The Jew shrugs and says, I wiped my hands on the drapes. Yeah. Well, my father loved to eat in the living room. Uh-huh. He was a television addict, and he loved to sit and watch TV, and he would forget to bring napkins into the living room. So when he thought my uh, my mother wasn't looking, he would use the curtains for a napkin. He'd wipe his hands on it. So again, you're saying this joke is based on actual events. You should have seen the, the, the shape that the curtains were in in, in our living room. Okay, here's, here's another joke. Uh, a young man was going to evening classes in philosophy to improve his education. And when he came home, his father always asked him what he'd learned. This evening, we talked about Einstein and the theory of relativity, the young man says. Was is das der theory of relativity, the father asks. 
Well, it shows that everything is relative. If you were sitting on a hot stove for five minutes, it would seem like an hour. But if you were making love to a beautiful woman for an hour, it would seem like five minutes. So the old man looks at his son for a minute and says, And from this, Einstein makes a living? I was taking philosophy classes. I, I, was, I went back to Brooklyn College. I was taking philosophy. My father was a barber. Uh-huh. And his dream was that eventually I would be standing next to him cutting hair in the next chair. Okay. He used to have me standing over a bottle practicing uh, tapering with a scissor and comb. Over a bottle? Yeah, a bottle. Pretending that the bottle had a neck, Uh huh. and I would run the comb and the scissor up the neck to the head of the bottle. But, the, so, but a bottle doesn't have hair. It didn't matter. I was learning the techniques of moving the scissor and comb up and down. Okay. And his dream was for me to eventually work side by side with him. When I realized where he was at, I said, I've got to do something with my life, and I don't want to end up like him in a barbershop. So I decided mm-hmm. to go back to college. And uh, he wasn't supportive of it. Well, you can't make a living from philosophy, he thought. What are you going to do with philosophy? He was, he was constantly putting me down. So what do, you think you're, what do you think your father would think of being remembered in this way through these jokes? To have so many of his, you know, his lived-through experiences be laughed at, to have to have that be his legacy in a way. He would have been pretty unhappy, but the fact is that uh, he ended up with some kind of a legacy. A lot of people don't leave anything. At least he left something. People might not remember the haircuts he gave, but it'll be remembered for the laughter that he gave and these jokes. Mm-hmm. You know, Johnny, if... If, if anything, after we're gone, if people could think about us and actually smile, that's the least we could hope for. We all want to be remembered fondly after we're gone, but try as we might, we can't control our legacy. In fact, the most well-adjusted people might be the ones who don't care about their legacy at all. A few weeks ago, Maurice Silkoff passed away at the age of 104, and by all accounts, he leaves behind a proud legacy. Starting out from humble beginnings, Maurice became a union chief who spent more than five decades fighting for the rights of workers across Canada. At the end of the Second World War, He went to the German camps to bring back textile workers. He brought 650 families to Canada, people that might have otherwise died. And yet, as he neared the end of his life, Maurice seemed unconcerned about his legacy. In his 90s, he became a writer. But whereas other men might have spent their twilight years writing about past accomplishments, Maurice focused on day-to-day life at the home for the elderly where he lived. I spoke with his granddaughter, Marae about the book of short stories he left behind. He was the oldest guy there, and he always complained about the altacockers. And the altacockers means the old farts. So he felt like he was, you know, a 30-year-old man trapped in the body of a centenarian, surrounded by, you know, fools and idiots and old people. You know, it was a little bit like that. That's how he felt. And he would never say that. And he was obviously like a very kind man or whatever. But there was some aggravation that he needed to kind of vent. And you can read a lot of these stories are are him being quite frustrated by the way things work in this home for the elderly. 
But I mean, what what I find most interesting about it is that the tendency for someone at his age, nearing the end of their life like that, you would think, is to look back and to think about their legacy and to write a memoir of of you know all their past experiences. But his book is so concretely rooted in the present. That was my grandfather's trick. How do you mean? You know, everybody always asked him. He lived until 104, almost 105. And everybody always asked him, you know, what's your secret? And sometimes he would say, oh, you know, I have a gin and tonic every day, which was true. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, keeping your body in good shape and your mind in good shape is very important. And obviously all that was. But I think that when you go through the type of hardship that he went through when he was very young, you know, he landed in Montreal, this like super poor child from Jewish Dublin, um, you know, whose parents both died of tuberculosis when he was a very, very young child, mm-hmm. and he went to go work in the factory. So he just learned when he was a kid, you make do with what's in front of you, and you don't dwell. The past was the past, and the present was what you were living in. I really think that that's why he, he didn't think that he needed to write, you know, the big blowhard memoir. And he was also afraid of death, which I know is kind of funny to hear um, of someone who was so old and was old for such a long time, you know, but he really didn't like thinking of the great beyond too much. And he definitely wasn't someone to dwell on the past. So what does that leave the present, you know? How how do you know that he, he feared death? Um, he, he didn't love being alone before my grandmother died. He spoke about being afraid of what it would be like after she died. And the term he often used was, what was he going to do? Talk to the four walls. But when he spoke about it, I mean, you could see real fear in his eyes. And I once asked my grandfather what he thought happened after death. Mm -hmm. And when I asked him that, I had been very ill and I was thinking a lot about death. And Mm -hmm. my grandfather was always the sage of the family. I mean, he, he definitely was not a man that I would call spiritual. He was a hardline atheist. And so I asked him, you know, what do you think happens, knowing that he absolutely despised that type of question. Mm -hmm. And he said that he thinks absolutely nothing happens, that it's a great void, that there's nothingness. And I was like, why? Why do you think that? And he said, because I think life is about people and life is about human relationships. And if you can't have those anymore, then for me, I don't understand what's left. That is really what he believed. Mm -hmm. So in terms of his legacy, he really is, was so proud of my dad. And I think that he sees my dad, who's a superior court judge and an esteemed judge, um, as being his big legacy. Like that, I think that is the thing. Like my father was never referred to by my grandfather as as my son, Joel. It was always my son, the honorary justice, Joel Silkoff. And again, my grandfather wasn't pretentious, but, you know, when you grew up penniless, a tuberculosis orphan, you know, and end up with, you know, a son who's a superior court judge, you're going to have a lot of pride in that. And he really, really did. So that that's his legacy, Yeah, is my dad. And I think that he felt like, well, that's good enough for me. <laughs> 
Some of us hold our children as our greatest and truest legacy, while some would like to be remembered for their art, an area where so few are granted immortality. For every John Milton, there are thousands who are forgotten. But if you're gone and there's nothing left for anyone to remember you by, you won't know anyway. So why fret over it? And even if there is an afterlife, wouldn't you have better things to do than hang out as a ghostly specter in the bookstore aisle seeing who's buying your novels? All the same, many artists live each day struggling to leave their mark, defining themselves by their successes and hoping those successes live on, even if they themselves cannot. But art can be a very cruel mistress, almost as cruel as those we call our friends. Campus of Clarkwell College, graduation, 1990. Hey, hey there. Whew, what a day. Oh, first I did the ellipticycle for like an hour, and then I had to run to the Dean's small cocktail party for honors students. I was so surprised you can get honors since you tried so hard to be schmoozy with your advisor. Man, it's so sad how we're all going our separate ways, our little gang. Sheila, the smart one. Tyler, the artist. Me, the stable one. And you, the fun, funny, crazy one. With all your plans and your poetry writing and your music and whatever you have going on at the time. You're like the outsider of the gang. Like those artists who build towers in their backyard out of, like, TV dinner trays, or who scratch the entire Bible into a bar of soap with their fingernail and end up in mental institutions. I mean, like, not obviously insane, but more like all your efforts may not get you anywhere, may not be fully embraced by the public, but you're just gonna do it anyway, no matter what. And that's just great. You're like the outsider in that sense. So what are you doing after college? Nothing yet? Yeah, I know. I'm not sure what I'm doing either. It's so hard to choose the right path for you. It's like one false move, and you may lead an entirely different life full of flaws and mishaps. You got a job as an intern this summer. Cool beans. Where? An art gallery in New York. Fofon. <laughs> what gallery? Bonwick Gallery? Weird. Did they expand their program? I thought it was just for teens. No, I'm sure I'm wrong. Speaking of art, did you hear? Tyler got accepted to RISD for grad school. Total free ride because they thought his work was the best and showed the most promise of all this year's graduates. I hope you're not too disappointed you didn't get in. God, after college, I don't know what I'm doing either. But I did get this really weird call from some animated TV show that's starting up. It's got this really boring name, The Simpsons. I don't know, it's probably dumb, but we'll see. The Simpsons. So lame, right? <laughs> Whatever. The Simpsons. Well, anyway, they offered me a job pretty much the day after graduation, so I won't be getting hammered drunk like you tonight. <laughs> anyway, have fun. Gotta go. But definitely keep in touch. Open mic night at Caf Cafe, 1991. Oh my god, I'm so glad I got a chance to see you perform. Wow, that was fun. That was just fun. Really fun. Sorry the crowd was so small. But they were all clapping. You really got a lot of applause. Did you have a lot of family and friends in the audience? It just seemed like everyone knew you or something. Oh, you work as a barista here too. I guess that internship at Bombwick Gallery didn't really lead to anything, huh? Well. I'm so glad I got a chance to see you perform. 
So this is your band now. Cool, cool. Too much with the number two. Great name. Oh my God. Can I just say, your guitarist is so hot. I couldn't stop staring at him. He's just like electric on stage. He really adds a lot to your band. Charisma, I guess. What's his name? Jacob Fountainhead. Even sounds like a rock star. Well, anyway, what are you doing later? Oh yeah, I guess you have to clean up. Send steamed water through the cappuccino machines and wipe down the coffee thermoses and stuff. Wow, I totally remember having to do that for my job after high school. It was a little bit better since I was in Rome, but still, I understand. Hmm, me? Oh, I'm probably just gonna go to dinner with some of the cast from The Simpsons. Yeah, <laughs> I'm still there. Pretty much paying my way. Yeah, I'm just freelancing as a producer now. Anyway, let's catch up soon. Outside in front of Club Hush for a film premiere party, 1993. I excuse me? I I'm sorry, but this is a private party and... Oh! <laughs> oh my god! Hi! I didn't recognize you! Did you get a haircut? I like the way it frames the circle shapes of your face. God, look at all these people standing outside trying to get in. It's so weird. Freaks me out. Just like the palpable difference between the haves and the have-nots. You, you have an invitation, right? Oh, I, I guess you have to wait outside then, sorry. It's insane in there anyway. I'm working for Scorsese. You know, just helping Marty out with publicity and packaging. So, um, you're living downtown, huh? I hear it's so expensive and built up there now. I'm living, actually, in SoFoFi. SoFoFi, south between 4th and 5th. It's this sort of little-known enclave of amazing old factory loft spaces. I'm actually in the building where rent was inspired. Tyler is up there right now, painting a mural on the wall. Of course, with what's going on in Tyler's career, it'll probably be worth more than the building. <laughs> did you see that amazing cover article about him in Art Forum? Jeez. Oh my god. And did you see Jacob Fountainhead on Conan? He is so hot. And guess who's directing his new video? Yep, me. I know, crazy. And what about you? Anything new? Anything? Oh, oh you got a dog. How cute. What's its name? Checkers, that is so sweet. It's so important to learn to care. Oh, looks like they're opening the party to the general public. You should go check it out. Oh, hold on. Andy, be sure to tell Ethan about the after party. Oh, sorry, yeah, it's just stupid and small. It's dumb after thing. It's just dumb, small, stupid after thing. I didn't buy you, but it's just, you know, it's just dumb and small. Bonwick Gallery, 1998. Hi, thanks so much for coming. That is so nice of you to come. But wait, forgive me, but I, I kind of think I didn't invite you. I mean, by accident, because I just sent out invitations to a few select... Oh, that's right. You used to have an internship here at Bonwick before I became board chairperson. Hey, what's the cane for? You have a hernia? What a bummer. Oop, oh, hold on. Ghostface Killa, sup? <laughs> Thanks so much for coming. How goes it? How's the new record coming? Great to hear, great to hear. Don't you just love Tyler's work? It's so post-graffiti. He's genius. I know how you kind of looked down at Tyler's work in college, but you didn't? That's funny, I thought you did. Uh, he causes such visceral reactions. 
At least that's what the Times review said. So what are you up to? Ooh, applying for residency at Macacoon, the renowned artist colony, right? Wow, best of luck. Good luck with that. Not to crush your hopes, but, well, you know how difficult it is to get in there, right? It's sort of more for, like, emerging artists, like, on Tyler's level. But maybe if you try hard enough, you can at least be in their Creative Helpers food service program. It's this internship my nephew did. But don't get all depressed and mopey like you do if you get rejected. You know, you should come by and leave flyers next time you have a show. We love to support the community here. And you can put your flyer here with all the other great things going on. Teen spoken word and contact dance improv and acapella groups. Kinkos, 2001. Hey, it's genuinely so good to see you. What are you here for? Photocopying your resume? You lost your job at Olive Garden? Bummer. Well, your resume looks great. That font is so eye-catching. It really wakes up the eye. Oh, wait. I don't know if this matters to you, but in your address, it looks like your street name isn't capitalized. I mean, it's totally minor, but it's one of those tiny details that could put you straight into the no pile. Ugh, I hate niggling things like that. <laughs> That's another 50 buckaroos to recopy. Bummer. You should ask me to proofread next time. Oh, what great timing. My manuscript is ready. Me? Ugh, I have been really, really busy. Not even enough time for myself, even. Just running around. Hey, photograph this. Hey, curate that. Hey, will you be the regular person spokesperson for a premium jeans line? God, go away, you know? I will totally keep my eye out for you on the job front, though. I hear since the smoking ban, a lot of people are making money by selling single cigarettes on the street in front of bars. I'm not saying that you should do that. I just mean that there's opportunities right under your nose. You never know. God, look at us. So grown up with our jobs and our job huntings. This age of our lives. It's weird. It's like we're all finally settling down, or just settling. It's just so sad to see some people in life that are so seedless. I mean, not like you. You're doing your thing. But there's some people out there who are never satisfied with who they are, who search and search, who while away their time from meaningless job to meaningless job. Those people who always seem to be single and short on cash who no one will remember after they're gone, and they slightly look like they're going to cry all the time. It's hard to say goodbye to those youthful delusions of poetry, those moments as a kid when you sat in the comfortable crook of a tree root and looked deeply into the sky and thought about infinity and your little heart leapt with possibility. But then none of your dreams come true, and you have that horrible, painful moment of realization that all your attempts were a wasted series of synapses in your brain, and everything seems colorless. And you sit there, dreamless, worried, wondering if this is how life ends up, deflated, and in like under 10 years, you'll just be wrinkled and sitting in a bay window with a vodka and clamato, looking out over the active traffic on the street, raving to the buses and neighbors and passers-by about the noise. I don't mean you, you. I mean, like a general you. What's wrong? What? Why are you so upset? Why are you crying? 
You poor little strange thing. No, you can tell me. Don't be shy. Come on, sweetie. Just let it out. I know it's hard. But I'll always be by your side. I've known you forever. We've been through so much together. You can tell me everything. I'm your closest friend. a cent to pay the rent but we're gonna make it I know we will we may have to eat beans every day but we're gonna make it I know we will and if a job is hard to find and we have to stand in the welfare line I've got your love and you know you've got mine on Wiretap today, you heard Buzz Goldstein, Murray Silkoff, and Mike Albo. The story he read is excerpted from his book, The Underminer, co-written with Virginia Heffernan. Special thanks to Tanya Birkbeck. Wiretap is produced by Mira Bird-Wintonic, Crystal Duhame, and me, Jonathan Goldstein. Tune into Wiretap Saturdays at 3.30 and Thursday evenings at 11.30. Or subscribe to the podcast at cbc.ca slash wiretap, where you can also download the latest wiretap ringtone. It's just stupid and small and it's dumb after thing. It's just dumb, small, stupid. Let people know it's just a stupid and small after thing with every ring of your phone. Our car may be old, our two rooms cold, but we're going to make it. I know we will. We can't even spare a roach or crawl, but we're gonna make it, I know we will. And if I have to carry around a sign, saying, help the deaf, the dumb, and the blind, I've got your love and you know you've got mine. We're gonna make it, I know you will.